Greetings, dear listener. It's good to have you with us here again. Um, I'm going to put out here a bonus episode for you today because I just came across this article that was posted in the Surrealist Revolution Discord by my uh, by my friend Stephen Klein, and it's called Surrealism in the American South. He posted it to the Peculiar Mormorid um, blog here um, just a couple of days ago, and 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 I said back to him in the, in the Discord. I said, what a beautiful article. Thanks for taking up the mantle of the keeper of the ancient histories. I'm going straight away to make an audio version now if there are no objections. I want my tongue to lick the words. And indeed, that is exactly how I feel. Um, it is, it's such a beautiful article, and I'm so grateful to Stephen for having taken the time to do the research and to write it up. Um, it's, it's so good. So, uh, so without further ado, I'm going to read it to you. Um, right here. And uh, while I do, if you don't mind, I, uh, in the spirit of Southern surrealism here, I am, I'm going to be drinking coffee here that I made um, out of this Waffle House mug that I bought not too long ago. So let me pour that first. All right, so Surrealism in the American South by Stephen Klein. Introduction. The marvelous here reveals itself in the light of a surrounding aura of fertile life-and-death excess brought on by an alchemy of merciless heat and humidity, storms, past military rule, and cultural ruin. And that's a quote by Davy Williams from Arsenal Number no. Four, and and here's a picture of some kind of a a sculpture of a face that I won't presume to describe any further than that. <laughs> All right. The American South is a weird place, filled to the brim with weird people. Yes, it's a veritable cornucopia of oddballs and creative mania down here, ask anyone. We are the punchline of every non-Southerner's joke. We are America's archetypal uneducated yokel, the scapegoat for various societal ills. And we love it. Oh, yes, we do. We just love playing it up. Just love playing the clown at all the parties, y'all. We've got a healthy and sometimes not quite so healthy, disrespect for authority, for the pretensions of the rich and the overeducated. Our humor is absurd and dumb and goofy, and it's chock full of lame puns. We have a dark and gruesome side to us, too, a history filled with racism and slavery and indigenous genocide. Yet, We've had more than our fair share of rebellious, revolutionary moments here. As well, slave rebellions in Savannah, the Maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp, a long history of labor struggle, among other things. The South is a land of magic, too. We've got our hoodoo, we've got our Appalachian witchcraft. In this area, as in others, our most interesting aspects are to be found in so-called low quarters. 
in cultures marred by slavery and poverty. By way of illustration, in Georgia, we once had our own idiosyncratic form of mumming, dubbed Riding Fantastic, or Serenadin'. Around Christmas time, groups of revelers called the Fantastics would suddenly emerge and roam the countryside after dark, sporting strange and marvelous homemade masks, all dressed up as goalies and ghosties and long-legged beasties. Eventually, they would stop at some stranger's door, demand from them an offering of wine or eggnog or other treats. A refusal of this simple request would gain you a whole lot of nothing good. A pranksterish upside-down always took flight whenever the Fantastics came to town. They would ride horses with their clothes and masks on backwards. They would tie up all your chairs up a very tall pole, or perhaps free all the horses from your stables, and much, much more. And here's a uh, here's a here's a <laughs> an article from the AJC um, by Violet Moore from when I can't I can't tell the date from the picture, but. Uh, it's called Riding Fantastic, and it says uh, Christmas was a lot rowdier when the young folks went riding fantastic. And uh, there's that old article up by the AJC. The world of the South is a world which is painfully vibrant, hot, and humid. Sweat consumes us all. At a certain temperature, our minds will simply cease to function. In the dreaded depths of summer, we all become deranged madmen. Yes, it is quite a delirious air that we breathe here, an air filled with constant overgenerous outpourings of death, sex, and birth. To live in the South is to live among excess, as Davy Williams pointed out. Nature has lost all control among us. She is sex-mad. She is cruel and violent. And living inside her as we do, we become infected by her madness. And so we wish to fuck, to fight, to rip blindly at some animal's red flesh, to dive deep into darkest swamp. Under this blazing, cruel sun, we all lose ourselves. We wish inexplicably, suddenly, to be the alligator. All right, next section. A few popular accomplices, precursors, fellow travelers. And here is a image from the game Resident Evil 7 uh, with the caption, a mad killer redneck surrealist assemblage. And it looks like a, like a bunch of horse legs that are all tied together in a strange configuration at the what looks like maybe the opening of a tunnel looking out from the tunnel onto the trees and it looks like some strange sort of like a eternal sun <laughs> symbol or something with the with the horse legs <laughs> okay the marvelous is strange fungus a fungus which thrives best only on the very edges of mainstream life. It procreates in forgotten alleyways. It spreads like kudzu 
among society's worthless spaces. Or, at the very least, it is given more space in which to grow there, to individualize, to nurse and feed its own eccentric singularity. We see society's fear towards the unchecked worthless in films such as Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Deliverance, or more recently in a game such as Resident Evil 7. That old backwoods archetype of the mad killer redneck, that dirty devil containing motivations completely beyond the pale, completely beyond all rational understanding. And more recently, perhaps, we see it in that most lovable internet meme, Florida Man, Dadaist king of all nonsensical crimes? Those people exist, undoubtedly, and all those tropes fill me with amusement and, well, perhaps even just a tiny bit of pride. But if you like those ones, kiddo, well, how about a few of these other nutters over here then, too, eh? Huh? Well, how about it? Will y'all let me be your tour guide? And here are some pictures from Pasaquan. St. Aom, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, creator of Pasaquan, a man who seems almost too perfect to be real. Did we surrealists dream of him? Is he tall tale? Is he Paul Bunyan? St. Am was a man who moonlighted as a fortune teller, as male prostitute, as drag queen. He was a man who ran a gambling parlor, trained dogs and snakes to guard his home, and danced naked at the top of the Empire State Building. Most importantly of all, he was the man contacted by three tall and pointy-haired Pasakoyan entities from the future and told to build for them a colorful, marvelous Xanadu in the backwoods of Georgia, in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And so he did. When one first stumbles onto Pasaquan, one feels utterly overwhelmed. All those bright colors, all those intricate solar patterns, all those strange figures and towering heads, all those very prominent genitals. It invades one's senses. It rewires them. One pinches oneself. Are we actually seeing this? Can something so marvelous as this really exist? Echoes of pre-Columbian Mexico, indigenous art, and the lost continent of Mu can be traced, yet Pasaquan remains its own wholly singular entity, the true meaning of absolute divergence. I've been to downtown Buena Vista, Georgia. I've looked around, and it is so small, so unremarkable, that it hardly leaves a trace in one's mind, yet St. Aelm somehow flourished in this environment, somehow created in this land his own personal Xanadu. Nothing really accounts for this aberration, not really. And so we realize, abruptly, that our world, that our seemingly predictable world, is a complete and utter black box. Because without rhyme or reason, some unsummoned Pasaquian may appear. Without warning, a utopia may suddenly materialize 
right before our unbelieving eyes in some mundane spot of nowhere, in a place that we all least expect. And here's an image of, uh, of Pasaquan again. This is um, looks like some kind of wall, maybe at the top of a tower in some kind of half-moon um, parapet kind of poking out from the, from the wall. Let's move on then. Let's behold the man, Edward Leedscown. Man dropped from outer space. Man? No, probably not. Something else. Something better. Facts? Okay, mere facts. Not from outer space. No, not a little green saucer man, after all. Instead, a traveler from Latvia. Close enough? Don't know. Never been there. Never been. But this Edward, well, he built a nutbug utopia down here also. Just like St. Elm, just like Howard Finster, just like Joe Minter, and Coral Castle was its name. Coral Castle. Simple name, sure. Yet, it was anything but a real head-scratcher, an Atlantean jewel. In constructing it, Edward worked alone, worked at night, built, levitated, materialized, <laughs> a wonderland of heavy oolite limestone without reason, rhyme, and no one and nobody knows how. How he did it. Mere ten cents admission into Coral Castle. Yes, mere ten cents in order to see the impossible, to see marvelous. When asked by visitors about his technique, about his method, Edward merely shy, smiling, merely divulging no real truths. Quote, I know the secrets of the people who built the pyramids, unquote. That is all he ever said, all he ever hinted at. Edward studied magnetism, it seems, wrote one incomprehensible book on magnetism, too. <laughs> is that a piece to his puzzle? And what else did he study? What else? Alpha Centaurian, Anthropotechnics? <laughs> don't know. I don't know. And he's dead now. He's well gone. Or perhaps merely magnetized towards some mermaid's newest dreaming. Miami knows, but she won't be a telling. <laughs> and here's some pictures of, of what, um, of some oh, paintings that look like uh, some like strange uh, gray alien seeming people. There's a gray alien sort of woman with black hair in a blue um, blouse um, cradling a what looks like a baby gray alien, and uh, surrounding her are these uh, little praying mantises uh, against a white background. And then there's um, a, a picture of a man in a purple room, uh, naked, facing a 
what looks like a a glowing white stone like reflecting against the, the purple floor and he's he's like gesturing towards it with his his arm down and his palm up and and this uh praying mantis is looking at him with what looks like some kind of a, a white halo <laughs> and, and sort of one arm bent up uh. <laughs> how about that okay <laughs> Dropped from outer space? Edward Leedskalm? Perhaps not. No. Perhaps there. I was mistaken. But we do have one such a figure, dear reader. A painter who, in fact, was dropped down from just such a high place. Dropped from there many, many times, in fact. Countless times. His name? David Huggins. Born in 1959, then raised in rural Paulding County, Georgia. Paulding County, which happens to be my own small, insignificant, super-mundane place of origin. And here, I am going to interject that I also spent the early years of my life in Paulding County. <laughs> um, grown themselves some real odd ducks out there, huh? Apparently... Apparently so. And this David Huggins, well, this Mr. Huggins, has had the great and sublime pleasure of being chosen to perform near-endless sex acts with several interdimensional beings who have visited him throughout his long years. <laughs> These erotic escapades started in the forests of Dallas, Georgia, outside his childhood home. And, at a certain point... David began recording all these rare experiences of his uh, in paint to quite magical results. Our very own Roberto Mata. David's marvelous canvases shiver and shine with an obscene strangeness. They are love letters to a new post-human copulation, an ode to surrational sex. Desire, unbound by space, time, or good manners. Desire, made interdimensional. And here is the, uh, the iconic cover of Neutral Milk Hotel's album, In the Airplane Over the Sea. And pardon me for a moment while I uh, pour myself a bit more coffee. I should say before I before I read this, um, that band's real special to me. I, I I've seen um, members of the band a couple of times, but I remember this last um, they had a they had a concert that was their last concert, um, their last concert that I think they've ever put on at least to this point. And, um, and the lead singer Jeff Mangum was there, and they were all there, and it was at their um, I think they have a commune out in Athens. And uh, you could only get tickets from the local record store. And um, <laughs> and I had seen um, the... 
I think he's the bass player of the group, Stefan Koster. He had a group earlier um, for a little while called The Music Tapes. And it was a sort of a magical circus experience. Um, and there were some, some things that I really couldn't explain. Uh, during that performance, I... I would, they said to look at the top of the tent and look at the presents that were there. And they asked somebody what they had, like a special experience for Christmas. And I remember when I was a young, young, young child in um, living in Dallas, Georgia, actually. And it was one Christmas where my parents couldn't afford presents. And um, they went and got some presents from from charity, and one of them was a, a toy train set. And I remember them feeling very uh, sort of overwhelmingly good when that Christmas morning I opened it, and I was so pleased, and I said it was the best Christmas ever. So I'm here at this music tapes concert with Stephen Coster, who's one of the members of the, the Elephant Six recording company we're about to talk about and um and he's in this this circus and this whole time he's talking about how his um his uh he, he grew up in uh, like his ancestors were like romanian circus people and like there's these ancient circus traditions that are passed down in any case i they asked who had like a touching christmas experience and what was the what was the, like a present that you got that was like overwhelming to you and i I raised my hand and I went up to the front and I said, um, and before, before I said anything, they had brought those presents down from the top of the circus tent and they had brought them to the front and, um, they were sitting there and they had opened the presents and they were, they were tapes and, um, they had opened up the, the, the tape and they had put it into a, like a dictaphone. And they were waiting to hit play before I said what my answer was. And I said my answer was a a train, a train set, a toy train set. And they hit play on the dictaphone <laughs> right after I said it. And they had someone from the group saying toy train set. And I, I had no idea how they did it. It was like, I'm, I, there's, I, I'm sure there was some kind of a trick, but <laughs> it was, it was like, it was an amazing experience. And so Later on, I met this last Nutramoke Hotel concert, and as the concert's wrapping up and they're sort of walking off, I I see um, Stefan Koster, and I Stefan or Stephen, I can't remember. I think it's I think it's Stefan, but I I I find him, and I say, Hey, I was at the show, and this happened to me, and what what? Uh, how did you do it? <laughs> And he said something to the effect of like, uh, everything's imaginary and the whole world is uh, dreaming life into existence or something, <laughs> something like that. It was some crazy like answer like that, <laughs> and and uh, it's it sticks with me to this day. But anyway, I, I'm sorry to interrupt uh, Stephen's article, but because he's about to talk about Neutral Milk Hotel, I just wanted to relay like my own personal um, experience with with that group and some of its members, um, because it, it really was marvelous, to say the least. <laughs>
Okay. So anyway, we're back in the article and we're here with Nutrimunk Hotel uh, with uh, an image of the cover, which for those of you who aren't familiar, um, is a background of um, the, the ocean with some ships on it and a woman in a red dress with her hand up and it's made of stars and her head, instead of being a head, is some kind of a drum. And there's um, a, a small boy looking at her from below, and he's got a star on his shirt, which is um, sort of green stripes, um, horizontal stripes, and his, his arms up. And there are a few people swimming in the water. Okay, back to the, uh, back to the article. In the 1990s, a very peculiar collective egregore haunted the southern states of Louisiana and Georgia. It was called the Elephant Six Recording Company, and at its core, or at least at its most surrealist core, there was a man, or was he, called Jeff Mangum. In those days, Jeff was a somnambulist thing, a man of night terrors, and waking dreams. Jeff slept very little, but when he did sleep, when he did dream, he would be greeted by marvelous nighttime visitors. Visions of amorphous little balls of light, of giant bugs on the floor, of mad screaming monks. Numerous stories from the E6 inner circle recount an overflowing procession of many such strange encounters, as though Jeff were unconscious magnet for them. One bizarre account tells of Jeff and another E6 musician engaging in conversations with each other through the walls of their rooms, while both were completely asleep. Surrealist books, pataphysical books, Gerard de Nerval, René, Duomal, these surrealist favorites all made the rounds too, influencing members of the collective to various degrees. In interviews, the surrealist movement is mentioned as one of the primary models for the formation of Elephant Six. Some bands, like Of Montreal, have even made overt references, classics such as Story of the Eye, Le Chant de Mal d'Aurore, and Paul Eluard. But few in the collective were as authentically surrealist as Jeff. Few actually lived surrealism. Objective chance often reared its beautiful, severed head to these madmen, too, like when the band explored the Musée Mécanique in the Bay Area and suddenly came across a child in the spitting image of Anne Frank, around which their most famous album was based. As for the lyrics, well, Jeff, he just felt like he didn't write those songs at all. He felt like he had just channeled them from somewhere, automatically. Unfortunately, this period of intense high weirdness and joy didn't last. Jeff Mag... Man sorry, Jeff Mangum <laughs> soon suffered an inner crisis and left the band, left the mu music scene, left the still young Elephant Six Collective, 
At his very height, he evaporated and embraced silence. Just like Rimbaud. But before I move on to the next section, I will say that this was after he had gone silent for, I think, like about oh, like maybe a decade or more. That concert that I was talking about that I was at, it was like one, for one tour, he came back and then left again. And this concert that I was at was the last concert in that tour, and it was at home in Athens, at the Elephant Six commune. They had their own stage. <laughs> I think half of the people in the audience were their friends. Anyway, it was a beautiful experience. Moving on. And here is a picture of a uh, a bird with its head in the sand, and it says, wow. <laughs> and uh, there's in, in, on the side it said, did you know that there's a million bucks hidden in the house next door? But there's no house next door. No? Then let's go build one. <laughs> And then there's a bunch of references to fnords. <laughs> so, uh, clearly we're getting into uh, discordianism here. All right, here's the next paragraph. Time for a brief side squirm through discordianism? Sure, and why not? Principia Discordia, that great counterculture classic of chaos... Written by Carrie Thornley and Greg Hill, that great prankster bible of surrealist ontology, first Xeroxed on Jim Garrison's copy machine in New Orleans and then later popularized by Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus trilogy. The same Wilson who, oddly enough, knew the Chicago, the Chicago Surrealist Group. <laughs> well, after New Orleans and numerous other stops along the way, this very same Carrie Thornley settled down in Atlanta. Carrie spent his last few decades in Little Five Points playing his funky trickster shtick up and down Moreland Avenue, working over at Acapella Books, still existent, and leaving behind happy, hazy heiress trails wherever his two golden feet took him. And here is a picture of a book called uh, A Handbook of Fist Puppets by Bessie A. Ficklin. And uh, the, the cover has um, sort of a old, um, sort of late Victorian-looking children's book uh, illustration type of, of a boy and a girl. Uh, the girl has a hand puppet on her hand that is a rabbit, and the boy has um, a hand puppet on his hand. Looks some like some kind of a clown. Bessie Ficklin, definitely, definitely, virtually unknown in Georgia, and yet a fellow surrealist undertaker friend of mine found her. He dug her up from the word vaults, dusted her off. And then, naturally, she began to molt, before very I began to speak. What was found there? Underneath time's thick-hidden vast petticoat, an authority on hand puppets was found, yes, but, more importantly for us, an authority on dream, and on dream poetry was found there. 
In Savannah, Bessie collected all instances of dream poetry that she could, and then studied these strange shards, these little gifts left behind by her underselves, by the goblins of her unconscious. She even formed a small local poetry circle to study the phenomena. An early surrealist group of sorts? Perhaps. Perhaps. And here is a picture of um, a, uh, a, a, a cartoon of um, a small cat sitting on a, uh, a small stool playing uh, piano keys that are the teeth of a dog's mouth. And the dog's mouth is sort of opened up uh, and it's, uh, you know, sort of inside where you would see the piano strings, you see the dog's tongue. Uh, and this looks like it's in an alleyway with um, sort of a street and a, a brick background. And it, the caption says, seen from Tex Avery's Bad Luck Blackie. Pretty funny, aren't we? Pretty funny. Tex Avery, Walt Kelly, George Harriman. Our list goes on, goes on and on and on. And this humor, well, it stretches. It stretches us. And all of our small, sad, rationalist heads. It shows reality's true lack of boundaries. Under the guise of a harmless child's joke. A hide-in-plain-sight of our very own surrealist ideal of freedom. Isn't it? Quite clever. Quite unexpected. Quite delightful. That's our sublime, more-than-real sitting over there, isn't it? Parading obscenely before a billion lazy, eager eyes. On some unremarkable Saturday morning, those unending cartoon blocks, those trashy newspaper funnies, ah, there at the bottom of the deranged fishbowl of culture, it can still be found. The delirious octopi of truest marvelous those couch potatoes, those cartoon kids, future revolutionaries all, future Molotov-throwing bug bunny wabbits, future anvil throwers, future flatteners of tedious cops and tiresome oldies, and all of this going on right underneath the unsuspecting parental nose, too, going on right underneath each and every snot-filled, molasses-filling, bourgeois crust nose. But this isn't just something that the South does only. No, of course not. Wouldn't think it. It's everywhere, actually. The laugh virus is everywhere. Oh, sublime, revolutionary chuckle-worm, thy spreadeth thyself so far. Yes, I believe in the countless Robespierres of the giggle growing hiding inside of this gray and miserablest world. Under every rock and tree shall ye find them, under every blade of suburbanite grass, with the pun slingshots ready, ready to strike, to wound, to maim with savage giggle. Yes, within every sunken continent, within Every cocooning lost moon, it's the funnies a-gathering, it's the tunes. In every language, on every shore, Bugs Bunnyism, Eternal Contagion, Pogoitis, Unspeakable Danger, and yet, 
all that being as it is, as universal as it is, well, but we do do it damn well down here, though now, don't we? We do do it damn well. And sorry, I misspoke. Bug bunnyism, not bugs bunnyism. It, if it matters. <laughs> Pardon the errors. I'm not going back and editing. I'm doing this live. It, it is what it is. I'll, I'll chalk that up to, to the surrealist ethic of uh, capturing uh, real-time thought. <laughs> All right. Organized and not-so-organized surrealism in the South. And here is a photograph of uh, what looks like a black... It's a black-and-white photograph of what looks like a, hit, a hooded figure in uh, behind a, a wrought-iron fence, and behind the hooded figure is uh, what looks like um, a mausoleum, perhaps. It looks like they might be in a graveyard. But the figure doesn't have a face. The face is uh, just a white, white circle. Surrealism proper, if one wishes to make such a dubious distinction, started with Clarence John Laughlin, and it started in New Orleans. Most surrealist of all our cities, perhaps. Yes, of course it would start there, naturally late 1940s thereabouts. And this old Clarence John, well, he would set all his traps for his phantoms, his little camera traps, and he caught so many down there, he caught so very many, a thousand sur-ghosts, utterly collected, a thousand fragile enigmas obtained in stunning black and white, in stunning haunted whisper, of all Southern Surrealists, it is Clarence John Laughlin who best recorded, best discovered, our most seldom-spoken mysteries. Who best outlined, best, our gothic, decaying undercurrent. At our deepest strata, we are haunted, deadened, insect-bitten. Clarence swam in that black, decadent fluid of our past, of our future. Clarence communed with the South's, with South's shadows. He ensnared time. He reversed it. He put it on display. A photographer outside of time. And perhaps, perhaps, he was able to photograph to enchain his own ghost once, too, perhaps. Yes, and maybe that lost photo lays at the bottom of some dusty forgotten drawer in Louisiana, awaiting our true arrival. A strange, grayscale shadow clearance, wearing hyson-obscured celluloid eyes, frozen forever inside, self-imposed rectangular boundary lines, eyes staring out at us, staring out on our desolate, disintegrating world, an ever-observing sentinel on the back-forward flows of time. 
In trademark sibyllic silence, from cold, cruel vantage point of deeper, distant elsewheres, yes, perhaps he gazes still, still. Perhaps he speaks in tongues, perhaps he conjures prophecies, but we will never really know his mind, do you think? We shall never truly know him. He's far too crystalline, far too of translucent for that. The enigma which he haunted, sorry, the enigma which he hunted year after years slowly devoured him, slowly became him, inch by inch, photograph by photograph. Where Clarence stands, we see nothing. Nothing, that is, except for a muffled, hidden scream. An aperture without organ. And here's a picture of uh, a costume. It's a black and white photograph of what looks like a, a, a co someone in a costume. And the costume is a, a, a washing machine, I think, with cheer and Clorox on top of it. <laughs> I think like, the Clorox is on the face. <laughs> the washing machine is like the midsection. And it's a cheer detergent right there. And then the other person is in a costume that is an open refrigerator, and they both look like they're made of uh, paper. Okay. And then, and then we skip ahead a bit, folks. And then jump in our big fancy time machine, and we strap ourselves in, and we go whoosh. And then, here we are, the 1970s in a little old place called Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where several hushed whispers have recently been overheard. In dusty back alleyways, in half-empty parking lots after Sunday school, strange tales of a new beast astirring. Aom, kind of as-yet-undocumented cryptid, perhaps, slowly waking up slowly stretching long dinosaur legs, yawning wide. The beast's name? Raudalunus. Raudalunus? I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> I hope so. A freewheeling artistic collective, or perhaps a traveling circus, inspired by pataphysics, dada, and surrealism in the 1970s Alabama in 1970s Alabama. Its activities varied, unpredictable. One thing is quite certain. Tuscaloosa, it didn't know what hit him. A marching vegetable band suddenly appears alongside a wholesome homecoming parade, completely shocking Ma and especially Pa. And then, on another year, appliances. A dancing fridge man cavorts with a singing washing, <laughs> a singing washing machine thing, and everywhere 
good upstanding Christian folks are being ear assaulted by the most unwholesome and satanic music that they have ever heard. <laughs> poor Ma, poor Pa, poor Sally Mae. One Raudalunas member, the pantsless Reverend Fred Lane, <laughs> gets famous writing sick songs about cutting people with knives or about devilish men with ears that fold back, or, most shocking of all, about sinister French toast man driving in shadowy French toast van. <laughs> Behind those dark and pointy sunglasses of his eye... Of well, behind those dark and pointy sunglasses of his, the eye of Satan himself burns. Of this we are 93.7% certain. <laughs> yes, and for a good four or five years, Rautalunas continued to wage its mad guerrilla war against the humble Alabamites, mocking everything good, upstanding, hardworking, and patriotic. But Rautalunas eventually faded away, leaving in her wake a thousand shocked and overcooked minds, as well one very pesky water bill, seven years overdue. And here's a picture of uh, what looks like somebody playing a banjo with a bow and some other sort of strange wooden... Uh... I can't, I can't describe it. I don't know. This is, there's some strange way of approaching a banjo. <laughs> He's got some electronics on the floor. And then it looks like a, um, a viola player. And she's playing her viola. Um, so it'll look a, a white blouse and some glasses. These are um, black and white photographs. From within the madcap trickster belly of this strange Rattalunus Anathwar, a new formation soon was birthed, all bloody red and wailing, just a tootin' its scared canine horn, basically. It came to us super loud, and it honked Alabama's ear hole something fierce on that birthing day, and it laid a golden noise worm inside Alabama's ear so irreversibly. It was to be an explicitly surrealist group this time, unlike Raudalunas. Poetic and bold, very unlike, quite the opposite, in fact, of a wheel-spinning bumpkin boy hamster. Anti-domesticated and wild, wild like wildfire. The very first truly surrealist group of the American South, Glass Veal. LaDonna Smith, Janice Hathaway, Davy Williams, Mitchell Cashin, Johnny Williams, and Thomas Faulkner sat at its core. Though fellow travelers were always welcomed, always invited in to take a little ride on this marvel-multiplying Ferris wheel called surrealism. Glassville called Birmingham, Alabama its nest home. It created cornucopia of automatic writing, paintings, drawings, games, music. 
one of its primary dreams to take surrealist experimentation further into the domain of the sonic, to massage the ear with the marvelous, to explore pure psychic automatism via a vessel of weightless sound, playing together as communicating vessels without score, form, or discussion, giving the unconscious mind allowance to speak, to scream its own songs through the medium of their welcoming bodies. These experiments were released through their label, Transmusic, and publications of automatic writing and other all-purpose madness drip-drizzled onto a few papery bookstuffs, too. Bookstuffs containing such fabulous names as Beef Sphinx and Divining Tongue. Members traveled far and wide, meeting distant Sir folk whenever and wherever possible, forming several alliances, friendships, and aquatic symbiotic relationships, influencing and being influenced in turn. Still active today? Yes, ever active. Active like a volcano. Active like an earthquake. Remaining today as an iron-turtled beacon, as an improvising collie dove's pirate radio. A signal, yes, a whisper, towards the any-all southern Sur people still left in this rabid, this underwormed land. Quote, Just hand that unsung, unconscious, I untuned and tweak guitar. Little fruit fly, just see what kind of a beautiful new hole is bound to open up beneath your feathered feet. I'll say that one more time. Just hand that unsung, unconscious, I untuned antique guitar, little fruit fly. Just see what kind of beautiful new hole is bound to open up beneath your feathered fates. <laughs> and here is an image of Stephen Klein, Hazel Klein, and Aaron Dylan Kearns um, at the Egregory exhibit. It's a black and white photograph. Um, Stephen's wearing a, a white jumpsuit and a mask. Hazel is... Um, covered in an outfit that has a vertical dividing line with half of her in black and half of her in white. And it's covering her face. And Aaron Dylan Kearns is dressed all in black um, with a, a black covering on his face and what I believe is a World War I soldier's helmet. Time for a jump forward, O oh Earl. Time for a punch up on the upcord inside of our fancy fresh time machine vehicular. Womp 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 womp. Ah shit, back it up now, Earl. Miss the target. Pwomp 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 pwomp. Here. <laughs> Here we are now. We traveled proper. Our observer eye setting sight on Atlanta. On year 2016. And we are seeing two weird fish now. Just a Hazel Klein and a Stephen Klein. 
And we follow them along, and they rush away, and they lose us in a dank Cartersville alleyway. Camera shy, the little mousy bastards. But we catch up with them anyway, sooner or later, and it seems they've been meeting with several other weird fish too, against all odds. A certain Megan Leach, a certain Steve Morrison, here in this sunken, sunken aqua city, in this hot, wet, feathered Atlanta, and a fella named Aaron Dylan Kearns, and a certain James Robert Foster, a certain Alvaro Michael, yes, later on, not to mention those others, those others, an Atlanta Surrealist group. In this economy? <laughs> my, my, they said it couldn't be done. And yet these weird fish, they just seem to be accumulating shadow. They seem to be spreading out moist webs, and a deluge of gameplay is suddenly unleashed upon an unsuspecting city and an avalanche of black-and-white photocopied zines dropped down from bluest sky. Zines, yes, zines filled to brim with bizarre poetic vagaries with lost occult secrets, inane puns, and those mailboxes? They're all now speaking in tongues, too. These Atlantean madmen, it seems, have been spitting numberless erect postcards out from Surrealist HQ, a strange new breed of Surrealist undercommunication. The stories tell of chance cut-ups, collaged devils, hidden codes, and our time clock moving onwards. Other words, a fleshy exhibit tentacle drops down from the ceiling in 2019, all pinkered, all tactile, and stink-sweaty. Polymorph Body Shop is the name which it gives itself. Then, in 2021, their very own egregore materializes itself in exhibit form, all black and spectral, all shadow-spawning. End of 2022... What of 2022? Why, a cavernous, extra-dimensional clown carnival is unfurled across town in that year, spreading firm insurrectionists' dreams. Yep, that Atlantean dice just keeps on a-rollin', rollin'. Oh, but where will it end up? That, my dear Sasquatch, the old nobody knows. Or maybe he don't. <laughs> Rolling, busybody possum, abrupt stops in a speedy roll. He turns to me, spits out a wad of chew tobacco, cries, wags finger, and despairs. Quote, but you didn't even roll around the southern iceberg all the way even once, you loon. You didn't even give time enough to turn over full like on Chattahoochee's Sir Historical Jazz Tortoise, her tortoise! I wave my fastly deflating writer arm up out at this busybody possum in mock defeat. Elbows flabby flailing. I put down my thickly mildewed witch-cursed father's bluest of britches. I give naughty possum the old southern stink funk. I give him an illustrious anal wink by way of an apology. <laughs> And he seems more or less satisfied by my kowtow, this busybody possum, more or less. Yeah, more or less. Possum gives me 
a furry thumbs up, and then he drives far, far away in a red Ford pickup. He is cawing. And so, sailoring it all together, we jump on up, on up, on up, towards thy miraculous, unmapped, kudzu jam Babylons, all mothering, all smothering ourselves, something wicked, something strange, with our gritty thoughts, remade fever humid, uttered deep fried, ever cast, just a sailing along, Alongside the top of the fancy, inescapable y'all sees. And it ends with uh, an image from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed um, that article as much as I did, that essay um, by Stephen Klein about the history of uh, surrealism in the South. I, I, I hope I didn't make too many mistakes, uh, and I hope my reading did it justice. And um, thank you all for joining us on this special bonus episode of Mumbling Planet. We'll see you next time. <laughs>